0: Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together today to worship your great name. And Lord, we we've sung about the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do thank you for all that He has done to reconcile us to you. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus' work of reconciliation—it wasn't Him trying to manipul- manipulate you into loving us. Um, because it was your great love that sent him to accomplish that reconciliation. Lord, we thank you that it is the triune God whose love we have experienced in seeing the Son lay down his life on the cross and take it up again by walking out of that tomb on that Sunday morning. And we thank you that you have seen fit to bless us by granting us faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we have not seen him. Lord, we, we believe in the testimony of your word uh, that has come to us through many witnesses, Lord. We thank you for the, the historical reality and certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we don't believe in a fable, we believe in a, an actual historical event. And we thank you that our King is alive today and that he is coming back. And Lord, we pray you'd help us to live in the light of his return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're, we're continuing to go through Ruth chapter 4. And once again, we're only going to cover a couple verses today, verses 11 and 12. So turn to Ruth chapter 4. And as I did uh, two weeks ago, I'm going to read from verse 1, just so we can get into the flow of the chapter. So Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate, and sat down there and behold the close relative or the redeemer of whom boaz spoke was passing by so he said turn aside so and so sit down here and he turned aside and sat down he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said sit down here so they sat down then he said to the closest relative Naomi who has come back from the land of moab Has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here, and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption and exchange to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Now, the verses we're looking at, verse 11, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Today, being Father's Day, we are encouraged to honor the men that God has placed in our lives as fathers. And some of us have good fathers and some of us have had not so good fathers yet we are called to honor them regardless of their quality because in honoring them we honor the god who placed them in our lives that being said it is certainly easier to honor a good father than a not so good father isn't it but what what makes a father a good father well some qualities that came to my mind are humility love sacrifice, and faithfulness. And these are some qualities in a father that make it a joy to honor him rather than a drudgery. And as I was studying Ruth chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it occurred to me that Boaz, in committing himself to redeem Naomi and Ruth's family, he was signing up to be a father, wasn't he? He was signing up to be a father. He was signing up to raise a son. And he was willing to do this, and he was desirous of doing this, even though, as we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, the child would not legally be his, because he was raising it up in the name of the deceased. And he was willing to do this, even though raising up this son, not only would it not legally be his, but he himself would not gain personally from this child. From a worldly perspective, He was doing this completely for someone else. It was not going to advance him in this world at all. In Boaz, we see someone who is humble. We see someone who has an others-focused love. That's the only reason he was willing to do this was because he had that kind of others-focused love. He was willing to sacrifice and he was willing to act faithfully to this family. So in Boaz, we see a father or a man signing up to be a father who exemplifies those qualities. Boaz is the kind of man that it would be a joy to honor on a day like this, Father's Day. And as we continue to study Boaz's life in these verses, we're going to see that it is this kind of father that God delights to reward that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that through the, the prayer of these witnesses, God is planning on rewarding Boaz for the kind of father that he is signing up to be. We're going to see how he, how he rewards this fatherly redeemer. And as we observe how God rewards him, we're going to be exhorted to imitate that godly example. And we're going to have our direction, or our attention directed to the greater redeemer Boaz's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in Jesus, we see the perfect exemplification of the qualities that we're going to observe in Boaz. So, starting in verse 11, we're going to see that God intends to reward this faithful father, this faithful would-be father, he's going to reward him with a house and a name. A house and a name. Two weeks ago, we saw that leveret marriage was a costly thing to carry out. Just to remind us what leveret marriage is, if there was uh, a family of multiple sons, and one son married, and then he died leaving behind a widow, the other son, next in line, was called on to marry that widow in order to raise up a son in the name of his dead brother. That's what Leveret marriage was. And we saw two weeks ago that this was a costly thing to do. We looked back at Genesis 38, where we saw a case of Leveret marriage take place. Remember whose sons were involved in that? Does anybody remember? Name starts with a J, rhymes with Buddha. Judah, that's right, Judah. That's the family that we looked at in Genesis 38, and who were his Two sons that were mainly involved, it was his firstborn Ur and his son Onan. And remember in that chapter when Ur, the older brother, died, Judah told his second son Onan to take Ur's widow, Tamar, as his wife in order to raise up a son with her for his dead brother Ur. And we saw in that chapter how Onan took Tamar as his wife, but he refused to raise up a son because he knew that the child would not be his. That's the reason given. He knew the child would not be his. Probably, Onan objected to the idea that he would be raising up a son who would add nothing to his own personal inheritance. With Ur gone, what would that mean for Onan? More for him, right? So why is he going to raise up a son who's going, going to divert some of that inheritance away from him. He didn't want to do it. Here in Ruth 4, we've seen another man who we've been calling Mr. So and so because we don't have his name. We see this man also be unwilling to fulfill the duty of leveret marriage. He considers the price of redemption as too high to pay in order to redeem this family. Remember what he said? Back in verse 6, he said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. But in contrast to Onan and in contrast to Mr. So-and-so, we see in Boaz a man who does not consider the price of redemption too high to pay. He is willing to do this. And stretching back into chapter 3, seeing his interaction with Ruth, He's not only willing to do this, he's desirous of doing this. He wants to love this family in that way. He's willing to sacrifice the time, the effort, and the material resources required to accomplish their redemption. And remember, he's willing to do this for a family who is dirt poor. They cannot pay him back. They cannot pay him back. In verse 10 of this chapter we see Boaz declare his commitment to fully redeem the family of Naomi and Ruth. And he calls on those present to be witnesses to that commitment. He's he's calling on them to make it legal, to make it final, to make it binding. In verse 11, which is the first verse we're looking at today, we see the ten elders that Boaz had rounded up, and we see the crowd that had gathered in the meantime we see them all affirm their role as witnesses. And once they've affirmed their role as witnesses, they begin to pray a blessing over Boaz. And it is this blessing that we're going to look at today. So let me read verse 11 again. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. So that's, that's the blessing. They first pray that the Lord will make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. And what does the writer of Ruth describe, or what do these witnesses describe Rachel and Leah as having done? They have built the house of of Israel. In case anybody is here who's unfamiliar with Rachel and Leah, who were they? They were the two wives of who? Of Jacob, also known as Israel. And of course, when these witnesses say that Rachel and Leah built Israel's house, they don't mean that Rachel and Leah were carpenters, right? That's not what they're talking. That's not what these witnesses are talking about. They are speaking. When they say they built the house of Jacob or the house of Israel, they are speaking of the sons that Rachel and Leah bore to Jacob. You'll recall if you read in the book of Genesis that it was through these two wives and both of their maidservants that twelve sons were born to Jacob. Twelve sons. And the descendants of these twelve sons would go on to make up the what? the twelve tribes of the nation Israel. So in the words of these witnesses, Rachel and Leah built up the house of Israel. And these witnesses are praying that God would use Ruth to do for Boaz what God used Rachel and Leah to do for Jacob. That's what they're praying. And... If you, if you stop and think about it, this prayer of the witnesses is a bit of a plot twist. Because whose house, in chapter 4, whose house has Boaz been intent on building up? Who do you think? Elimelech's house. Malan's house. Not his own house. Remember the, the purpose of leveret marriage? We read it a couple times in Deuteronomy 25, which outlines the law of leveret marriage. And we learn there in verse 9 that the purpose of Leveret marriage is for the living brother to build up the house of his dead brother. Remember, if he refused, he'd be known as what? He'd be known as the man who refused to build up his brother's house. That's, That's what Boaz is seeking to do. He's seeking to build up the house of his dead relatives. And yet even as Boaz is in the process of seeking to build up his dead relative's house, these witnesses are praying that God would build up Boaz's house through Ruth. And as they pray this, they're likely thinking about uh, God using Ruth to bear Boaz more children than that, that first one, the one that will carry on Malan's name, right? Because legally, that first son would belong to who? To Elimelech and Naomi. He would carry on Malan's name rather than Boaz's. It's only additional sons who would belong to Boaz and carry on his name and inherit his property. And that's what we see later on in this very chapter. In verse 17, looked further down in that chapter. It says, after this child, Obed, is born to Ruth and Boaz... Notice what the the women say. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to who? Naomi. So not to Ruth. Naomi. He's not said to be Ruth's son. He's said to be Naomi's son. He's legally recognized as Naomi's son in the place of who? In The place of Malan. The son of Naomi and Elimelech who died. Now, it's, it's interesting that as you go through the rest of Scripture and you see the places where Boaz's name pops up, do we ever hear any mention of, of any other children of Boaz? No. And it doesn't mean necessarily that he didn't have other children with Ruth, but they're not ever mentioned. We only ever see Obed connected with Boaz, which is not really what we would expect just from what we've seen so far in the book of Ruth. For example, look down at verses 18 to 22 where the genealogy of Obed is given and it stretches back to Judah's son Perez. It says, now, there are the, now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashan, and to Nashan Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and this is not the only case where we see Boaz being referred to as Obed's father. Turn over to 1 Chronicles 2, and you might want to keep a, a pen in 1 Chronicles 2 because we'll be coming back to this chapter a, a couple times. 1 Chronicles 2, so you'll after Ruth you get 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles. Again, in verses nine through, through thirteen, we've got a genealogy. I'm going to pick it up at verse eleven, where we see Nashon, which we saw in the previous genealogy. First Chronicles two eleven. Nashon became the father of Salma. Salma became the father of Boaz. Boaz became the father of Obed. And if you were to turn to the Gospels, to Matthew chapter one, verses, verse five and to Luke chapter 3, verse 32, where whose whose genealogy is given there? Jesus's, the Messiah's. And in that genealogy, we find Boaz being listed as the father of Obed. So it seems as though as Boaz sought for Obed to carry on Elimelech's name and Malan's name, God was seeing fit for Obed to also carry on Boaz's name. That's not what Boaz was seeking, but that's what God did. As we'll see later, it is actually Obed, not any additional children whom God will use to answer these witnesses' prayer for Boaz. Obed is going to be the one that God uses to answer this prayer for Boaz that these witnesses are offering. So in a a sense very similar to how Rachel and Leah built a house for Jacob through the children they bore, so Ruth... As we'll see later, she is going to build a mighty house for Boaz through this one child that will be born, Obed. And the reason I know that is because who will Obed's descendant be just two generations later? Verse 17, we see that. Who's his grandson going to be? David, King David, the ruler of all Israel. And who will Obed's greatest descendant be, according to the genealogies in the Gospels, King Jesus, who will be king not only of Israel, but of the whole world. So truly, these witnesses' prayer is going to be answered in a way far beyond, I'm sure, than, than anything they, they imagined it would. So they pray that in verse 11, but they also go on to pray that Boaz will achieve wealth in Israel. Or in Ephrathah. And that word for wealth, it could also be translated as valor. They're basically praying that, that Boaz would experience uh, much fruit, much fortune, great prosperity in Ephrathah. And Ephrathah was just came to be another name for Bethlehem. They also pray that Boaz will become famous in Bethlehem. That's what it says at the end of verse 11. And the Hebrew for that phrase, become famous, it's more literally rendered this way. May you call a name in Bethlehem. May you call a name in Bethlehem. And most translations render that as something like, become famous, which is probably the sense of that phrase. And it's interesting, again, because this prayer is asking God to give Boaz that which he is not seeking for himself. Because whose name is Boaz seeking to preserve and advance? Not his own name, Elimelech's name, Malan's name. But these witnesses are praying that Boaz's name will become famous in in Bethlehem, that his name will be the one called out in Bethlehem. So you see, as Boaz sought to build a house for someone else, God through the, the prayers of these witnesses, is seeking to build a house for Boaz. And when you come to 2 Samuel and you read about the promise that God makes to Boaz's great descendant David, we see the same thing there. Turn, turn, to me, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to see that what God is doing for Boaz, he's going to do the exact same thing for Boaz's great-grandson, King David. So turn to 2 Samuel 7. This is where God makes a covenant with David. We'll start in chapter 7, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. So what is what is David concerned about? He's concerned that he, the servant of God, is living in a nice house while God Almighty, the ark of God Almighty is just in tents. He's wanting to build a house for God. He's wanting to build a more permanent place for the ark of God to reside. And then in uh, verse 3, Nathan says, yeah, you should go ahead and do that. But then in verses 4 through 7, God visits Nathan and says, no, no, I have other plans. Starting in verse 8, we see these other plans that God tells Nathan to go and share with David. Look at verse 8. This is God's word through Nathan to David. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And catch this, I will make you a what? A great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now catch this. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make what? A house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. I now want to drop down to verse 25, which is in the middle of David's prayer of thanksgiving to God. Listen to how David talks in response to this glorious promise that the Lord has made to him. Verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever, and do as you have spoken that your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. So do you see there that as David sought to glorify God's name and sought to build a house for God, God promised to do what? To make David's name great and to build a house for David. And that's what he's doing for Boaz. Boaz is seeking to build up someone else's house and God at the same time is seeking to build up Boaz's house. God honors those who, what? Who honor him. And this is the point at which I want to apply this to us. The question for you and for me is whose house are you intent on building up? Whose house are you pouring yourself out in order to fortify and establish and perpetuate? Is it a house for yourself? A name for yourself? A cushy inheritance for yourself? Remember, Onan and Mr. So-and-so sought that. They sought for themselves. And look at what happened to them. God executed Onan, And he caused the name of Mr. So-and-so to be forgotten, even to this day. That's what happens to those who neglect God's house to seek to build up their own house. As Christians, whose house are we to be intent on building up? God's house, right? God's house. And by God's house, I'm not referring to this physical uh, building, right? This is not the church. This is the meeting house for the church, which is you and me. I'm talking about God's temple. I'm talking about the church, you and me. I'm talking about those in whom the Spirit of God dwells. For example, we see the New Testament refer to us, the church, in this way. For example, you can write this down, 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 5. Believers are called living stones that God is. Uh, causing to be used to build up a house, a spiritual priesthood for himself. You can write down Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, where Paul talks about how God has given teachers to the church for the equipping of the saints so that those equipped saints may do what? May build up one another in the body of Christ let me read to you romans 14 and verse 19 there paul says so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another one another he says very much the same thing in first thessalonians 5 and verse 11. he says Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So that's what we're called to do. Just like Boaz, we're not to seek to build up our own house. We're seek to build up one another. We're seek to build up God's house. And how do we do that? We build up God's house, first of all, by bringing the gospel to the lost so that they may repent and believe and be added to to God's house, that they may be made true worshipers of the living God. But in addition to that, we speak the truth and love to one another and we lay down our lives in service to one another so that we may help one another pursue Christ's likeness and in that way be built up as the body of Christ. And if you ever have any, any doubts about whether or not that is what we as believers should be pouring out our lives doing, then we need to read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, which is the Great Commission. What did Jesus say there? He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. That is the mission. That is the mission. Those were the words of Jesus right before he ascended. Are we doing that? And amazingly, if we are faithful to do that, God promises to reward us. Just like he rewarded Boaz, just like he rewarded David, if we seek to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, if we seek to build up his house... We will find God, by his grace, though he doesn't owe us anything, we will find him rewarding us. We will find him giving more of himself to us. We will find him using us more and more for his glory and his kingdom, now and in the age to come. So we see God rewarding Boaz with a name and a house. When we come to verse 12, back in Ruth chapter 4, We see God, through the prayers of these witnesses, we see God reward Boaz with preeminence. Preeminence. The witnesses of Boaz's redemption of Naomi and Ruth's family, they're not done asking God to bless Boaz. Look at verse 12. This is what they pray. They say, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they pray that God would make Boaz's house like Perez's house. Now, who was Perez? Well, Perez, as the witnesses say, was the son that Tamar bore to Judah. And again, this is stretching back to Genesis 38. Why don't you head back there? We're going to look at that again. Genesis chapter 38. We read this a couple weeks ago. It's it's the only other place in the Old Testament where we see a case of leveret marriage actually playing itself out. And last time I read from verses 1 through 11 in chapter 38. And in the first 11 verses of this chapter, we saw Judah's firstborn son, Ur, die because of his wickedness. And he left behind a widow named Tamar. And then in verse 8 of this chapter, Judah tells his second son, Onan, to take Tamar as his wife in order to raise up a son for his dead brother. And as I said before, Onan refuses to do his duty. And this refusal on Onan's part was evil in God's eyes. So what did God do? He took his life. And then in verse 11, Judah says that he intends to have his third son, Shelah, marry Tamar. But if you were to go and read verses 12 through 14, what do we see there? Judah never makes good on his word. He just leaves Tamar languishing in the house of her father, not providing for her. So what does Tamar do? Well, she takes matters into her own hands and they're not commending what Tamar does next, but she pretends to be a harlot and she tricks Judah into being the one to raise up a son himself. And you can read about that in verses 15 through 26. But I want us to read the end of the chapter. After Tamar tricks Judah, she conceives, actually twins, by him. And this is what we read in verse 27 to 30. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread in his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. That's what Perez means, a breach. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. So we see an unusual birth. Unexpectedly, Perez shoves his brother out of the way and winds up getting born first. And this unusual birth actually was a foreshadowing of things to come. It was as though God had providentially replaced Judah's wicked firstborn son, Ur, with this first son that that Tamar bears, Perez. And we're not told a lot about Perez, but from the few places where he and his descendants are talked about, it seems that Perez's descendants would become the most important descendants in the tribe of Judah. And this is where a, a concordance comes in handy if you don't know who Perez is. Look his name up in a concordance and go to all the references that refer to him, and you'll learn a little bit more about him. But I'm going to walk you through some of those passages now. Turn with me to Genesis 46. There's details in these verses that support the idea that Perez and his descendants became the dominant ones in the tribe of Judah. Genesis 46 and verse 12 we're told who the sons of Judah are. It says, The sons of Judah, Ur and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. So there, we are only told of one son's children, right? Perez's sons. We're going to see later that Shelah and Zerah also had sons, but nothing is said about them. We're only told of Perez's sons, which indicates they are the important ones in the mind of Moses, who was writing this down. Next, uh, turn over to Numbers chapter 26. Numbers 26, starting in verse... 19, chapter 26, is the census of that new generation who is coming into the promised land. Numbers 26, starting in verse 19. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Judah, according to their families, were of Shelah, the family of the Shelonites. So, obviously, Shelah had other kids, otherwise there wouldn't be Shelah right? Of Perez, the family of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the family of the Zerahites. So, Zerah had other kids as well that formed a clan. But then look at verse 21. The sons of Perez were of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Hamul, the family of the Hamulites. These are the families of Judah, according to those who were numbered of them. So you see how Shelah himself bore the name of his clan, Zerah himself bore the name of his clan, but Perez, he bore the name of his clan, and his two sons bore the name of their clans. So again, he is prominent. He is prominent. Hopefully you kept your finger in 1 Chronicles, because we're heading back there. 1 Chronicles chapter 2. And I'm I'm trying, the reason I'm taking you to these verses is so that we understand the significance of what the witnesses are praying for. Why would they pray for Boaz's house to be like Perez's house? That's what we're trying to discover by going through these references. 1 Chronicles chapter 2, starting in verse 3, it says, The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by Bathsheba the Canaanites. And Ur, er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he put him to death. Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all. Now here we hear about his sons that survived. Verse 5, the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Verse 6, now we get to know the, some of the sons of Zerah. The sons of Zerah were Zimri, Ethan, Haman, Calcol, and Dera. Five of them in all. So we find out there that actually, Perez's twin brother Zerah had more sons than he did. Zerah had five to Perez's two. But, go on to verse 7. The son of Carmi, Carmi was the son of Zimri that we saw in verse 6. So, Zerah's grandson, Carmi. The son of Carmi was Achar, or Achan, Anybody remember where Achan, where we read about him? We read about him in Joshua chapter 7. What did Achan do? He took something from the city of Jericho when they were supposed to not take anything but destroy everything. And how did that turn out for all of Israel? Not good. They lost the next battle. So Achan brought much trouble upon Israel and he was actually called Troubler of Israel. That is Zerah's illustrious descendant. Achan. So right there, you see, he's, just based off that, put down a notch below Perez. That's what it says in verse 7. The son of Carmi was Achar, the troubler of Israel, who violated the ban. Next, verse 9 of this same chapter, we read about the sons of Perez's firstborn, Hezron. The sons of Hezron who were born to him were Jeremiah, Ram and Kelubi, or Caleb. Ram became the father of Aminadab and Aminadab became the father of Nashon. Those names are familiar because we saw that in Ruth 4, right? Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, and who was Nashon? According to verse 10, leader of the sons of Judah. He was the leader of the sons of Judah. So we learn there that Perez, his house, was the prominent one in all of Judah. He was the most important of Judah's sons. So now, now that I've tortured you with that, back in chapter 4 of Ruth, when the witnesses pray that Boaz's house would be like the house of Perez, what are they praying? They're praying that Boaz's house will be chief among his people, right? And is that prayer answered? Yes, in a way that was, again, far beyond, I'm sure, what the witnesses were even hoping for. His great-grandson was David, who would become the king of all Israel. His greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus, would become the everlasting king of the whole universe. So what a glorious reward for this humble kinsman-redeemer, this man who was willing to lay himself down to put his life on hold in order to redeem this struggling family. Boaz, while seeking an offspring for Elimelech and for Malin in order to build up their house and to continue their name, God sees fit to provide Boaz that which he was not looking for, the greatest house in all of Judah through his offspring, Obed. As as we've seen throughout the book of Ruth, the life of Boaz in his role as a kinsman redeemer foreshadows so many aspects of the life of our, our great redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the same here. Turn with me lastly to Isaiah chapter 53. This is the last passage we're going to. You're well familiar with it. This messianic prophecy about the Messiah who is called the servant of God, Describing his suffering. I want to key in on verses 10 through 12 of this chapter. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. And as I read it, see if you can detect any parallels between this servant and Boaz. Verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself... As a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish or the the toilsome labor of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because... He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. We read in these verses of the reward that God gives to his servant, the Messiah, who laid himself down. Now I want you to think back to the testimony that the Gospels give us of the Lord Jesus. When the Son of God became a man to dwell among us, what was it that he came to do? When he became a man, why did he not take a wife? Why did he not bear children in order to make a great name for himself in this world? In Matthew chapter 4, where we see the devil tempt Jesus, in verses 8 through 10, when Satan took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory... And when he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me, why didn't Jesus take Satan up on his offer? Because that's not what he came to do. When Jesus came the first time, he didn't come to take over the world. He didn't come to make a name for himself in this world, man's world, Satan's kingdom. That's not what he came to do. He came to redeem a people. He came to lay down his life in the place of sinners so that he could pay the penalty for their sins and purchase their forgiveness. And yet, as we see in Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, even as Jesus sought to lay down his life for others, God was seeing fit to do what? To make his name great and to build him an everlasting house. Isn't that what it says in verse 10? If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see what? He will see his offspring. After Jesus laid his life down, God saw fit to raise him up again and to give him countless sons and daughters who would bear his name. And what kind of name has God given this servant, this redeemer? We read it in our call to worship. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God... "...highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Jesus gave up everything in order to redeem his people, And in turn, God gave his Son the universe as a reward. And Jesus is coming again. This time, he is coming to take over the world. Because it's his world. It's the world God gave him as a reward for his sacrifice that he accomplished. Isaiah 9, verse 6, describes this great name of Jesus in this way says, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Boaz signed up to be a father to this struggling family. Jesus, yes, he's God the Son. He's not God the Father. He's God the Son. But he is as a father to his people that he came to redeem and to build up a house to God for. He's Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And on this Father's Day, as you seek to honor your earthly father, do not forget to honor the one who is an eternal father to his people, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we honor him? We start by repenting of our sins and putting our trust in him alone to be our Savior and our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving your son to be an eternal father to us his children his his people that he redeemed and that through faith in him he has given the right to become children of god lord we thank you for our great redeemer our lord jesus christ we thank you for uh, how you use the life of boaz to not only give us an example to follow in seeking the good of others over self but also in directing our attention to our greatest redeemer the lord jesus who has accomplished our eternal redemption. Lord, help us to daily turn from sin and trust in him alone. As our Lord and Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.